This morning we will be looking at Romans chapter 2, specifically verses 12 through 16. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, By Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that by your spirit you would open up your word to us. Help us to see great things in your word. Point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand more who Jesus is and what he has done, that we might be made more and more like him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as we have been going through the book of Romans, we need to constantly remind ourselves that the overarching theme of this book is that Paul wants to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. And he does this for the benefit of the church that is gathered there, but also so that the lost might be brought into the church. And so Paul has started out this letter by answering objections to the need for the gospel. We've said it before that this is one cohesive argument that Paul is making, and it is remarkable how he anticipates the common objections and questions that would be asked. And so he started by showing us that all people know God, but that they suppress that knowledge so that they can continue on in a life of sin. And then he showed that living a life of external conformity to the law, an external moral life, was not enough because God does not grade on a curve. What is required from God is perfection, not just good enough. And so now he is about to explain the standard of God's judgment and how it applies to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And so I'd like us to see three things this morning from our text. First, we see that those who are under the law will stand before God. Second, we see that those who are without the law will stand before God. 
And then thirdly, we see the day of judgment in which both those who have the law and those who are without the law will stand before a holy God. Let's begin then by looking at the estate of those who are under the law. What Paul is doing here, not just in these verses, but up until this point, is trying to make everyone uncomfortable. If it has seemed to you over the past few weeks that Paul is talking a lot about sin, he is. He keeps bringing it up over and over. And he's doing this with a purpose. He's not just trying to criticize people and their actions. He's not just trying to condemn others. What he wants us to see is that there is no hope for any of us anywhere except with Jesus. Every place else we were to go or to turn or to look is vanity. And so right now in this specific text, he is focusing on the Jews of his day. Now if we think about God's people, the Jews of Paul's day, they took great pride in the blessings that God had given to them. After all, they were separated from all other people. They were called to the promised land. But most of all, they had been given the law. God's law is what made them different. That's how they knew not to eat the wrong food. That's how they knew not to do the wrong things. That's how they knew which actions were expected of them. The Gentiles, after all, did not. They didn't have the law. And in the mind of the Jews, that meant that the Gentiles had no hope of salvation. Because salvation, in the Jews' minds, was tied up with the law and the knowledge of the law. Their belief was that having the law, literally it being read in their hearing, was enough. Now put yourself in the place of a first century Jew. They didn't have Bibles laying all around of their house. They didn't have recordings of the Bible. They didn't have computer programs with the Bible. They certainly didn't have phone apps with the Bible. The only way that they got the Bible was with the public reading of Scripture. That's what Paul's talking about. That's how they knew the Scripture. That's how they knew the law. They had it read to them. And what they thought was that that was enough. That that differentiated them from all of the other people. An awful lot of other people who didn't know the law, didn't care about the law, and didn't hear the law. Now, how could it be that the Jews thought that the mere hearing of the law was enough? Didn't they know that God was a just judge? They thought maybe, I think, perhaps that the law could be kept. It might not be very easy to keep the law, but it could be done. And just by hearing the law, the battle was won. It was like they felt they were on the same page with God. You know what that's like when you have a discussion with someone and as you converse, you realize you're on the same page, you think the same thing about a subject, and you think, this is good, we've resolved this. That's the way they viewed their relationship with God. God tells us what He thinks. We're on the same page with God. Therefore, we're fine. God would look at them 
and would see that they knew right from wrong. And that would be enough before God. But Paul says it very directly. He says it is not the hearers of the law, but the ones who do the law who are righteous. Everyone will stand before the living God, the judge of all. Some may think that God will count them righteous because they know the law, because they know the rules. After all, that's what separates them from most people. But Paul says that will not happen. So what does that mean then for you and me here this morning? What it means is you cannot count on your church attendance as you stand before God. It is good that you hear God's word. It is good that you attend on the preaching of God's word. But just knowing is not enough. It is not enough to just hear the word. Well, Paul is plain here. Hearing is not enough. He says it is the doers of the law who will be justified. So so what does this mean? Well, in one sense, it addresses the hypocrite who says he knows God's law but never does it. But what does it mean to be a doer of the law? How much doing is necessary? And this is where Paul addresses his second point to those who are under the law. He says that some doing is not enough. It is not enough to try to find the break point where enough doing has been done. And Paul gives us two hints in the text to understand this. First, in verse 13, he says, the doers of the law. He calls them doers. Now, this does not mean an occasional doer. This is not like someone who dabbles in a hobby. The word that Paul uses here is a noun that defines someone with respect to the law. They are always known as doing the law. Now, for just a moment, stop and think about how broad and all-encompassing the law of God is. Often when we think of the law, what we think about is just the Ten Commandments, right? Not very long can be read in just a minute or two. And that gives us some sense that the law is manageable. After all, there's only ten commandments. There's not a hundred commandments. They're not a paragraph long each. I think I can manage this. But that's because we don't understand the law. If you look in your Bible, the law is actually included in Exodus and the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, there are a great many laws in there, so many that my guess is that no one in this room here right now could even recite them all, let alone claim to have done them. Now, while some of these laws are indeed ceremonial and have been done away with, so we can all enjoy bacon with lunch, there are a great many of these laws that are not ceremonial. And To understand how the books of the law work, Calvin, when he wrote his commentary on this section of the Bible, what he did was he rearranged the books in his comments. He took all of the sections in these four books that dealt with each one of the commandments, and he pulled them under the commandments. 
And so under each commandment were a series of laws, a series of regulations. There were a great many. What does that mean? It means that in order to be a doer of the law, you have to do more than you could have ever imagined, more than is possible. Now let me just illustrate this for you with one commandment. Let's take a relatively easy one, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now for some of us, we think that this means we can't curse God. Others of us think we'll go the extra mile and say that that means we can't use any foul language or curse words either. But if that's all that was encompassed by that commandment, I think we could agree we could try with a good deal of effort to keep that commandment. I mean, sure, we'll have to be careful when we're using a hammer or when we stub our toe, but it's not that hard. Now, I want to give you an exposition of this commandment. It's found in the questions in the larger catechism on what the third commandment means, what it covers, drawing upon all of the law and all of Scripture. Take a breath. The third commandment requires that the name of God, His titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, His works, and whatsoever else there is whereby He makes Himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. By a holy profession an answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. We're only halfway there. Because now the sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name is required, the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning, or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our oaths and vows, if lawful, and fulfilling them, if of things unlawful, murmuring, quarreling, curious prying into, and misapplying God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or in any way perverting the word or any part of it. I've also left off a good 20 or 30 words. It goes on. I trust you get my point. When we see that as the law, then we're undone. There's no way we can do this. I can behave myself when I stub my toe, but how do I keep every oath perfectly? How do I never take an oath for something unlawful? How do I treat God as holy and reverent in everything I think, say, and write all of the time? You see, when that happens, we are undone. How ready are you now to think of yourself as a doer of the law? Secondly, in verse 12, Paul says that all who have sinned will be judged by the law. This is the second way that Paul hints that a partial doing of the law is insufficient. Paul is saying that the standard we need to meet in every way and in all the time is perfection before the law. Now, One way to define sin, and Paul does it here when he speaks of sinning, it's not the only way in the Bible that 
sin is defined. But one way to define sin is by using a Greek word that means to miss the mark. You may have heard of this. There's illustrations abound from preachers about archery. I've never picked up a bow and arrow in my life, so I wouldn't know what that would be like. But I do know about targets. And I know a bit about target shooting. And what is very important, especially if you're using a rifle, is to try to hit the target twofold. First, you want to fulfill it. Secondly, you don't want to be off and have an accident. And what Paul is saying about sin here is sin is not hitting the mark, missing the mark. And what Paul is saying is that every person who ever misses the mark of the standard of the law, which includes every law in the Bible, is someone who will be judged by the law. James puts it much more succinctly. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. You see, it's not that we can do some of the law and be righteous before God. What Paul is telling us is we can't be hearers, we have to be doers, and then he says, surprise, there's no way you can do enough. We can deceive ourselves into thinking as long as we do more than other people, we are fine. But Paul strips that away from us. He takes away every place we could look apart from Jesus because Jesus is the place where we find refuge. Jesus did all of the law, all of the time. Peter puts it this way. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Paul says, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. Not just little sin, no sin. Jesus is the only hope for doers of the law. Now, because of the way Paul describes the law and our relationship to it, we might be tempted to see the law as a bad thing. We might think, if only we were ignorant of the law, then we couldn't be held to its standard. And so some have looked at this and said, well, if the Gentiles don't have the law, how could they be condemned? How could they even be said to have sinned? They don't know the law. And the classic hypothetical that this brings up is the story of the proverbial pygmy in Africa. The person in deepest, darkest Africa who has never received the Bible, who doesn't know God's word, and the question is, how could he possibly be accountable before God when God has not given to him his word? But Paul answers that objection. He's very clear about universal guilt. Look in verse 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Paul says that's no excuse for you to say, I don't have the law. Now, now what does this mean? Does it mean that God is being arbitrary? Does it mean that God doesn't even need a standard? He's not using one? How could that be fair? Well, I think what we need to understand is that Paul is saying, when he says they are without the law, what he means here by law is the revealed law given to Moses. It is the revealed Mosaic law. And of course, they are without that law. What he doesn't mean is the concept 
of right and wrong that every person has. He's been talking about this since Romans chapter 1. How we understand the nature of the universe. How we have a knowledge of God, but we suppress it. And he he goes on to say that when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Now, I have to disabuse you of a modern idiom. When we use the phrase, a law to themselves, we think of anything goes, right? They're their own standard. They're a law to themselves. That's not what Paul means here. What Paul is saying is, when they do the things of the law, when they do things that are right and do not do things that are wrong, when they see right and wrong, they become their own source of law. They reveal to themselves that they know what's right and what's wrong, that they know there is a standard, that they know that they must obey God's law substantively. It's what we would call natural law. Now, how do they know this law? Once again, Paul says, I'm glad you've asked. We know that they know this law because they do the things of the law. That is, what the law requires. They do what the law requires, which shows that they understood what the law is all about in substance. Now, we see this all the time. We see nations that pass laws against theft or against murder. They understand right and wrong. And have you ever had the opportunity to confront someone who feels that they've been unjustly treated? Say you're driving in a parking lot and you're hoping to find a space and you see one and you zip into that spot and maybe you didn't notice that there was someone waiting with their blinker on to get in that spot. Now, does that person exit their car and say to you, you know, I was looking at that spot, but but I understand you have your own abstract system of morality that you follow, and and I have my own abstract system of morality um, to follow, and, and for you it's okay to cut into a spot. I understand that. It's not okay for me, but I don't want to impose my abstract system of morality on you, right? Is that what they say? My guess is it's much shorter. Something like, what are you doing? I was here first. That's like the rule of life. The person who's there first gets the spot. When you cut someone in line, what do they say? They say, what are you doing? That's wrong to do that. What do you mean it's wrong to do that? Where are you getting the standard of wrong for? Well, everyone knows you don't cut someone in line. Well, where does everyone get that standard of wrong from? You see, those who don't have the law in their everyday life live as if the law exists. They have to or they wouldn't be able to survive. As a matter of fact, the small percentage of people that do not act this way, we call them crazy and we lock them up. We say you're not living according to the rules of society. We don't know what to do with you. That's what Paul is saying. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man, called this the Tao. That is, it is the standard of natural law that everyone has ingrained in them. He puts it this way. The Tao 
which others may call natural law or traditional morality, is not one among a series of possible systems of value. It is the sole source of all value judgments. If it is rejected, all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. The effort to refute it and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There has never been and never will be a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. Lewis is just observing what we see in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in every kind of culture, that there is a basic concept of right and wrong. Paul says that in the actions of people, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. This is the first witness against them. The second witness is what we call conscience. Paul says this clearly in verse 15. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, perhaps when I talk of conscience, what you think of is Jiminy Cricket. You know, some sort of cute cartoon character that tells Pinocchio what he should be doing or what he shouldn't be doing. But that's not quite right. Conscience is rather an awareness of right and wrong internally to us. And it goes beyond the objective standard. The conscience sees the relationship I have to the standard, whether I am breaking it or not. It's that inner voice that speaks to us regarding our actions. It's, kids, what causes you, when no one's around, at least you think, not to take that candy. You may think it's mom's voice in your head. It's not. It's a conscience. It's we understand what right and wrong are, and we understand what the consequences of our actions contrary to right and wrong are. And Paul describes this clearly for us. He says it can accuse us when we seek to do wrong. I can think of no better example of this than in Shakespeare's Macbeth. You remember that Macbeth kills the king in order to gain the crown. And you may recall that his wife, Lady Macbeth, pushes him to do it. She keeps telling him over and over that this is what they should do and that everything good will come of this. And that if he does this... Their lives will be perfect. The only problem is after the deed is done, we see Lady Macbeth in the washroom. And she's continually washing her hands. And she keeps saying, out, out, spot. And there's no blood on her at all. But her conscience continues to accuse her. She cannot get free from it. She knows what is right and wrong. She may talk like it doesn't matter. She may talk like she can get past it but you cannot surgically excise your conscience. Now, the conscience can also, Paul says, excuse us. It can defend us against accusations of wrongdoing. So when someone accuses us of doing something wrong, and we know we didn't do it, we weren't there, then our conscience excuses us. Again, that native sense of right and wrong kicks in. And we say, this is not right that you're making this judgment. I'm free from guilt in this. 
And what this means is, even though someone does not know God's law as revealed, he shows that he's a part of God's creation. God has created the world with a sense of order, of right and of wrong. And we can't escape that just because we don't study it as we should. Our very inner being shows that we are accountable to an external standard of right and wrong. Now all of this leads in verse 16 to that day. That day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. By Christ Jesus. Now Paul has been consistent in his application. Everyone sins before a holy God. Everyone falls short of his glory. And God is a just judge. And so judgment comes for everyone. Those who are with the law and those who are without the law. It all culminates in a day of judgment. Now Paul does use an interesting phrase here. He says, according to my gospel. Now, does this mean that the gospel judges people? That the gospel condemns people? Let's go back to our hypothetical person in deepest, darkest Africa. Does, he's never heard the gospel. Why should he be judged? That doesn't seem fair. Is he judged by the gospel? But Paul is not saying here that the gospel condemns or that the gospel judges. What he is saying here is that the law does that. Whether it's written revelation or whether it's written on the heart. What Paul means here when he says, according to my gospel, is that the gospel has a proclamation of judgment built into it. The gospel is indeed good news. But it also has bad news. The gospel tells us that God will judge, that he will judge everyone, and that there is no escaping his judgment. And to fail to make that a part of the gospel is cruel and deceptive. I know that I need a savior because I know I will be judged. And I know I can't stand in the judgment. And this judgment is more penetrating than anything I can imagine. Paul says, God judges the secrets of men. Now I want you to stop for a minute and think about what you keep secret. Now I don't mean things that aren't public knowledge. I mean the things that are so secret that you won't tell a parent. You won't tell a spouse. You don't want a family member to know. You never whisper to the closest of friends. Those secrets, God will judge. Jesus tells us this in Mark 4. He says, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. In Matthew 12, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account, listen, for every careless word. Now, I don't know about you, but that frightens me. I don't mean just everything you've ever tweeted. I don't mean discussions on Facebook that you thought the better of later and deleted. 
I don't mean things said in a restaurant. What Jesus means here is every word that you speak, you will have to give account for. That's terrifying. Because there is no way we can meet God's standard for every word we have ever spoken. We have to realize that there is no way that we can stand in the judgment by ourselves. So where do we turn then? If every single person cannot stand before a holy God, what do we do? If those who are under the law are condemned by the law, and those who are outside of the law are condemned without the law, where do we go? If we even accuse ourselves with our own conscience and our own actions, what is our hope? Our hope is the gospel. The gospel, dear friends, is not the opposite of justice. You see, sometimes we think that the gospel and God's grace is the opposite of justice. We hope that God will simply put aside His law and holiness and will let us walk on by because He's being gracious. This kind of thinking is what causes us to forget about the judgment. We hear that God has grace and we think that negates the judgment. So there's no need to even think about it. But the truth is the gospel is perfectly consistent with justice and judgment. The grace of God comes to us through the justice of God. He has placed our sins on His Son, Jesus Christ. God has dealt with sin. God is just in forgiving sinners. He has punished Jesus for our transgressions. Only Jesus, because He is God, could bear the punishment of our sin. And Jesus has been lifted up and vindicated in His work. Paul shows us this victory in that Jesus Himself is the one who judges. God places judgment into Jesus' hands because He has earned it. He has won the victory. Sin is a serious thing. We cannot pretend it doesn't exist. We can't hope God will forget about it because we know His law or because we've done some good things. God judges all people by His perfect standard. And our own inner selves cry out that this is true. But God has made a way for us to escape judgment. The gospel. Come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He is God Himself. Able to bear the judgment for your sins. Willing to bear that judgment so that you could be right before God. There is a law. There is judgment. But praise be to God that He sent His Son, Jesus, to save us from what we deserve and to draw us to Himself. Don't wait. Don't try to see if you could possibly do enough. Don't let your conscience accuse you any further. Run to Jesus right now, today. Let's pray.